I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Ronald Bayer, a professor of sociomedical sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Dr. Bayer has co-authored a perspective article on the recent decision by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force to recommend routine screening for HIV in adults and adolescents. Dr. Bayer, when the USPSTF considered routine HIV screening in 2005, it decided that there wasn't sufficient evidence to justify recommending it. So what has changed now? Well, one should think first of why the task force initially turned this down as a uh, routine procedure, even though it was very clear to everyone that the CDC was uh, moving ahead to recommend just such an intervention. Uh, The task force, I should say, you know, takes its charge of undertaking systematic reviews of the evidence very, very seriously and has a very high bar for what it considers evidence and what should count as evidence in making a recommendation. So in 2005, it looks at the available evidence and it says, so for an individual patient, a low-risk patient who's picked up through routine screening, what is a likely benefit to that patient of being identified? How many patients uh, in a low risk population, relatively low risk population, would you need to screen to find that one person? And it found at that point that the clinical benefit of being identified, uh, sort of a needle in the haystack problem, uh, was insufficient to justify the amount of screening that would be required. Uh, This was at a time, by the way, that uh, the recommendations routinely suggested that people with CD4 counts of uh, 500 and below commence therapy. So it didn't find sufficient evidence to justify a benefit for the individual. And in addition, it raised concerns that uh, those individuals who were subject to screening would be subject to a plethora of discriminatory, stigmatizing interventions by society. Then it turned its eyes to the question of, well, what would the public health benefit be? I mean, they knew that the CDC thought this was going to be an extremely important uh, transition in screening policy in the United States when it formally adopted its screening for opt-out routine screening. And it basically said, we have no good evidence that identifying someone with HIV infection has any impact on transmission rates. Uh, It was anecdotal evidence, but the task force said we do not have good epidemiological evidence, and in fact, the task force acknowledged that to do the kind of epidemiological studies that would be required to test this hypothesis that identifying people with HIV infection has an impact on onward transmission of HIV, they said to do such a study would take vast numbers over long periods of time, and they actually said it's not surprising these studies haven't been done. So on the level of public health, there was insufficient evidence. On the level of the individual, they basically said the risk-benefit wasn't good enough. And there were other things doctors could be doing with their time rather than routine screening of everyone. So at that point, they gave it a C, which is there's insufficient evidence to recommend for or against, basically leaving it up to each individual clinician to make uh, his or her own choice. And then what changed? Well, a lot changed. Uh, Number one, in 2006, the CDC actually did make it a central piece of its policy that all adults and adolescents in the United States be routinely screened for HIV infection using an opt-out approach uh, to consent. Uh, There were 
many, many organizations, clinical societies, that believe the time had come to adopt routine screening for HIV. But for the task force, when it returned to this issue at the end of 2010, uh, that's not enough to move things. Uh, they don't really care what the CDC says or what clinical societies say based on clinical experience. So a number of things changed. Number one, on the clinical level, recommendations for treating people with HIV infection had undergone a significant alteration. Uh, many argued that there was really strong evidence to begin treatment at a CD4 count of 350 rather than 500. And beyond that, there is in uh, the Department of Health and Human Services a panel on antiretroviral guidelines that had just recommended that all adults and adolescents with HIV infection, regardless of their CD4 count, be begun on antiretroviral therapy, that there was a, a lifetime benefit and an additional benefit in terms of reducing the risk of morbidities along the way. So on a clinical level, there was now evidence that earlier screening was important and that for individuals, there was a clinical benefit from being identified much earlier on. Uh, the second thing that changed was there was now very good evidence that if people with HIV infection, even though they're asymptomatic, begin to take antiretroviral drugs, their viral loads fall and they become less infectious. Uh, there was one major study, uh, it's called Clinical Trial 052, conducted by uh, Myron Cohn, and uh, his evidence, that study, uh, in a way, Earlier on, in 2005, the task force said, we don't have good epidemiological evidence. The epidemiological studies haven't been found. Now they had a good biological study that showed viral load reduction, transmission reduction, and so from a point of view of public health, identifying as many people with HIV infection in the asymptomatic stage was crucially important. And I think those two pieces of evidence really shifted the balance of evidence in this regard. You spoke of stigma in, in 2005, and you note in your article that in the new task force analysis, fears of rejection, abandonment, verbal abuse, and physical assault are no longer mentioned as a concern among people who test positive for HIV. So do you think that stigma has essentially disappeared in this country? No, I don't. I mean, I, I don't think stigma has disappeared. And I, whether the virulence of stigma has diminished, I think that's probably true. But uh, I think... Uh, Stigma and disease go hand in hand, and stigma and disease associated with uh, sex, especially with gay sex, with drug use, of carries stigma on its own and a stigma connected to who the people are that are most vulnerable to disease. I think what the uh, change in the task force analysis represents is a belief that given the benefits of testing, the question of stigma and discrimination really begins to pale. Now, the way the task force works, it sets out a research agenda for an evidence-based review group. In this case, it happens to be one located at the University of Oregon Health Sciences Center. But in the charge, as we can read it, to the evidence-based review group, they didn't even ask for a review of the evidence in that issue. So it seems to me six years later, seven years later, 
I think what this represents is uh, a kind of move towards the routinization, normalization of thinking about HIV and AIDS and trying to deal with it as a medical clinical situation rather than as a, a centrally social situation. So we don't know from the review what the level of discrimination is, what the level of stigma is, but it was striking to my colleague Gerald Oppenheimer and to me that the issue vanished, whereas in the 2005 review, it was a central reason for saying, on balance, uh, we shouldn't be recommending HIV testing as a routine procedure. And what's the new task force recommendation going to mean for the average patient and the average primary care physician? You know, when we wrote this piece, we talked about the curtain coming down on the debate. It seems to me the time for the debating of the clinical and public health benefits of HIV testing is over. And now the question is whether doctors will do it, whether patients will ask for it, or doctors will recommend it on a routine basis. And, um, you know, we need evidence. I mean, uh, one of the things that's been most troubling about the HIV story for a very long time is that despite the fact that there have been recommendations all along uh, that people at risk be tested, that uh, the CDC has recommended routine screening since 2006, that uh, 20 to 25 percent of people with HIV infection in the United States, that is between 200 and 250,000, don't know they're infected. And many of them are passing through clinical encounters where they could have been asked to be tested. So 250,000 people don't know they're infected means the opportunity for early clinical intervention until they begin to feel symptoms is missing, and the opportunity to intervene with them so as to reduce the risk of HIV transmission has been lost. So there is a both a public health and a clinical medical kind of imperative, it seems to me, that this last set of recommendations be taken very seriously and that clinicians routinely offer HIV testing to their patients. The nice thing about routine offer is you don't have to get into a discussion about what do you do for sex and whether you use drugs and have you ever done this, have you ever done that. You just say that it's part of clinical practice. And then if someone is infected, of course, you have to have a much more serious and much more uh, thorough conversation about risk and risk to self, risk to others. So I think that this should make a major contribution. The question is whether it will, and I don't know. In New York State, for example, uh, it has been state health department policy to have a routine offer for HIV screening uh, for a number of years. And despite that state recommendation, there are public hospitals in New York that still don't do routine screening for HIV. So between sort of the letter of the law and the practice, as it were, there's a gap. And it's a matter of clinician education. It's a big job for clinical societies. It seems to me it's a big job for public health departments that we have to close that gap of the unidentified. There's one other piece of data that's really troubling. That is that there was a study published in the MMWR that we actually mentioned in our paper this week that shows that between 2006 and nine, seven and nine, 41% of people identified with HIV infection had never been tested before. And that about a third of them uh, went on to develop an AIDS-related diagnosis within six months. That means they had been infected for years. 
and were found very late in their clinical course. So these represent, I think, real challenges to medicine and public health. In some way, we've done a great deal, but I think in, in many ways we're still missing the boat. If testing does become routine, what effect would you expect it to have on the spread of the epidemic and how quickly? Well, if the evidence from the studies is correct and testing does become routine and more people are identified and put into therapy, and that, of course, is the next thing, finding people with HIV infection is only the first step of the way, on the way. I mean, we really have to get them into care. And the data on that is not good. I mean, people get lost to follow up and whatever. But if we can get our systems of care in place, and if we identify more people, we should, because of the biology of HIV and antiretroviral therapy, really begin to... Uh, We have stayed really at a plateau of about 56,000 new infections a year in the United States, and we really ought to be reducing that. Uh, Whether we do that will depend on whether we find the people with infection and begin to treat them. Now, one change, and that should be kind of salutary, is that uh, under the Affordable Care Act, routine screening with an A rating that it will now have, there can be no co-charge for patients for such a test. And I think that should make a major contribution to at least removing one financial barrier to screening. The financial barriers to care, we'll just have to see. In fact, has that financial issue been addressed by the public health community? As you say, the screening itself would be covered without co-payment under the Affordable Care Act, but the downstream costs would not necessarily be covered across the board. What's being done to address that? Well, there have been a number of studies. I mean, the Institute of Medicine a year or two ago really did a very thorough analysis of the needs for systems of care and the consequences of our failure to have created systems of care that really meet the needs of people with HIV infection. Uh, Much is going to depend on the rollout of the Affordable Care Act and the extent to which, I mean, you know, one of the amazing things about the Affordable Care Act is how it expands Medicaid. But not every state, as you know, has uh, agreed to this expansion of Medicaid the cost of which would be picked up by the federal government, is considerable resistance. Whether the cost of health insurance will still be a disincentive to people, we don't know. I think the Affordable Care Act represents, in fact, one of the major achievements in American social policy in the last uh, close to half century. And uh, the real challenge is not simply in terms of HIV/AIDS, but in terms of health care in general and the huge disparities in health care. I mean, HIV/AIDS is really a disease of the poor and the marginalized in the United States now. Whether we're going to meet their needs and meet them in the context of meeting all health care needs is really something we'll begin to see beginning in 2014. Thank you, Dr. Baer.